In our final lesson about Paul's letters to the Corinthians, we discuss how our generosity mirrors the generosity of God, why appearance is not an accurate measure of one's devotion to Christ, and how God's strength is made more perfect in weakness. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome once again to Gospel Doctrine. This week's lesson is New Testament number 37. 2 Corinthians 8-13, through 13, God loveth a cheerful giver. As always, if you have a question about the scriptures we're studying or any question in life, you can email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. If it's a question about something in the Come Follow Me curriculum, I will respond with a scripture from that lesson. Otherwise, I will respond from whatever scripture I can find that addresses your concern. And as always, your five-star reviews on Facebook and iTunes help us to find more listeners and are much appreciated. So the interesting thing about the latter half of 2 Corinthians is that it almost appears like at, at, at the break of last week's lesson to this week's lesson, that end of chapter 7 to the beginning of chapter 8 is a completely different tone, completely different subject matter, and a lot of which has led a lot of scholars to feel like there are at least two if not three, different physical letters that comprise what we have as the book of 2 Corinthians. That's an interesting hypothesis. It doesn't matter that much, but it's possible that Paul wrote uh, these, these chapters at different times, and then they were later compiled into one. In fact, some people have even said, we believe that Corinthians, it seems clear that all of these were written by Paul and that they were all written to the Corinthians. Um, but some have even thought that chapters 8 and 9 were written before the rest. So one thing we do know is that Paul refers to two other letters. The first one is called the warning letter, and that's referred to in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9. And then in 2 Corinthians, first part of that, and in chapter 2 and a couple other places, um, he mentions a letter of tears or a tearful letter. So that's generally what these two missing letters are called. Some people think that the first part of our lesson today makes up one of these missing letters, the tearful letter or the warning letter. So I won't say more about that because it doesn't really affect our lesson today, but it's helpful to think that when we feel a little bit disjointed in the way that the thoughts are flowing, that might not be entirely our fault. In fact, it may be the result of uh, somebody compiling these a little differently than Paul intended. And so uh, Paul is actually, he's not as abstruse a writer as he appears when we're reading this, number one, as a translation of an ancient compilation, and number two, as an old translation as well. So we're getting sort of doubly hit with a cultural gap and a language gap uh, going from ancient Greek to old English and then trying to put it into modern English into our heads. And not only that, but there's an editing process that we don't quite understand. So as before, uh, this is one of those tracts of Scripture where I think it's very profitable to read more than one translation so that you can get a couple of different ideas about what certain sentences mean. Because once you do that, the sense of all of these uh, more difficult passages becomes quite clear. It's pretty clear in 
2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that Paul is talking to the Corinthians about raising money so that it's kind of the equivalent of modern-day fast offerings. They're raising money so that Paul and other servants of the churches, as they call them, the different congregations spread around the ancient Near East, uh, they can go and collect the money from those who have and distribute it to, to those who are suffering in poverty and want. And they've done this before, and this is only the latest manifestation of this sort of activity among the ancient Christian saints as them sharing their, their abundance with each other. So let's talk a little bit about abundance. The, this is an idea that Paul would have been very familiar with. It's, it's, the Hebrew scriptures are replete with the idea of economic and physical abundance in God's earth. But I think the place that Paul would have had it most strongly on his mind from is in the, in the book of Luke. This is Jesus' address in Luke chapter 12, verse 22. He begins by saying, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. And if you remember, he says, Consider the ravens, consider the lilies of the field. Uh, look how the ravens eat. They don't, they don't have to farm, but God takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't have to spin clothing, but God takes care of them. And they both eat and are clothed very well. Uh, this, this is an idea that Jesus w- was echoing from the Hebrew scriptures. And with just a couple of minutes thought, I'm sure most people can come up with a few examples in the Old Testament. One is the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, etc., etc. I lie down by the rivers of water. So this is one example of the ancient prophets testifying of how good God is to his creations. Uh, there are several of them. The, the most, probably one of the most notable or the most powerful of these examples is the 104th Psalm. And in this Psalm, Yahweh is being praised for all the many ways in which he provides for the denizens of the earth, not just people, but animals as well, and for the plants and everything. So similar to what Jesus is, is testifying of when he says, consider the lilies of the field. Um, if you want to understand this idea that God is generous to men on earth, this is a great chapter to read. In verse 10, Psalm 104:10, he sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap. And it continues like this. Uh, and in verse 24, it's, uh, it says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Now, the first place that this shows up in the scriptures is in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. The Garden of Eden is the kind of garden where Adam and Eve are called merely to to tend it. They don't have to actually plant anything or do any real work. They walk around and they pick fruits. In fact, uh, there are a number of trees in this garden. It's, it's almost an orchard, and God says you can eat all of the fruit, right? So what 
Adam and Eve are given originally is a place of abundance. Now, the word abundance means simply more than enough. When something abounds, it overflows. There's, there's so much for you that there's enough for you to give to someone else if you needed to. So that's what abundance is, and that's what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, and that's what they chose to walk away from. Now you remember, this is a more Christian, mainstream Christian and, and Jewish view on the fall than it is a Latter-day Saint view. But the view is that Adam and Eve, because they partook of this fruit which represented the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were substituting their own judgment for what God said was good and evil. They're, they're instead putting in their own judgment for what is good and evil. And when they did that, that's when the abundance dried up. Now, whether that is an accurate reflection of the spiritual uh, nature of the fall is not the question that I'm bringing up right now. The point is, what was Paul's belief about how the fall worked? And I think this this idea was, was prevalent, certainly prevalent at the time, and had a strong influence over what Paul was writing. And we can see it reflected, we can see it echoed throughout the scriptures for this week. So uh, because they have substituted, because man has substituted his own ideas, and it's certainly a true idea, right? This is one way of interpreting the fall as a uh, as sort of a, an analogy or a metaphor for human experience. And because we have substituted our own idea of what is right and wrong, then God can't be as generous with us as he once was or as he would love to be. Nevertheless, the earth is full of God's riches. And so what Jesus expressed in the 12th chapter of Luke was that God knows, first of all, that uh, look at how well God takes care of all the beasts and the plants. And then in verse 30, he says, All these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. So what Jesus is saying is not that you have no need, you shouldn't have any need of material things, but basically, of course you do. This is what everybody wants, and God knows that you do. But he says, instead of seeking them, just forget about it. It seems so strange. It seems so counterintuitive. But seek rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, the message is very much a reflection of the central message of the Hebrew Scriptures that Christ grew up with, which is that we came from a paradisiacal state. We came from paradise, and we fell to an earthly state. We, we came from a state of abundance, and we fell to a state of scarcity. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to return to abundance, what you have to do is transform what your priorities are from seeking to have the things of this world, which are created by God after all anyway. And instead of seeking to have that, seek after God, and he'll provide for you. It's only God that can provide abundance where it's overflowing. It's one of those powerful examples of a spiritual concept that also has a temporal manifestation, or even is primarily temporal. And uh, in verse 33, so we're still in Luke chapter 12, in verse 33, Jesus teaches, Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves with, with bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the point of this is that if we take our focus off of the, the corruptible things of the world, that the temporary blessings that come as part of life and put them on the eternal things, then God can 
more easily take care of those things. Uh, another way to say it is, if you remember, we've talked a, a number of times about the, the tabernacle of Moses and how in the holy place, the walls were embroidered with symbols of leaves and trees and other depictions of the Garden of Eden, of, of the paradise of the Garden of Eden. And this was only expanded upon in the Temple of Solomon and the Temple of Zerubbabel, right? These, the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus knew, even though most Jews didn't get to see it, they would have had described to them what was in there. And it was this imagery of Eden, of paradise, and of abundance. And so the abundance was not just physical, but they also understood it to be spiritual. So when they go to the temple, God's grace comes to them out of all proportion to their offerings. They bring an animal, and then all of their sins are forgiven. They recognize that they depend on God for something they could not possibly provide for themselves. So this is how the temple works. It points them to what God provides, which is generosity, both spiritual and temporal. And what the temple does for the Jews is take them back into that world where God's generosity and abundance flows. If you remember, there's a very powerful chapter in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, where just this tiny river flows from the base of the temple and eventually runs across the land of Israel, healing the lands and watering and almost cultivating the land as it flows, and then eventually going into the Dead Sea and bringing what was dead back to life. So this is what flows from the temple is abundance, and when we arrive in the temple, it creates abundance. And uh, one of the parallels that Paul draws, we'll get to this when we study Hebrews, but in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul draws this, temp this parallel between Christ and the temple, whereas the temple was the image. The temple was the symbol, the type. Christ was the reality. Christ brings us back literally into a state of paradise, into a state of abundance. And Paul was speaking spiritually in the book of Hebrews, but here in the book of Corinthians, he's talking about uh, this is this is kind of the subtext of what he's not saying in chapters 8 and 9 when he talks about generosity. He's speaking now spiritually that as we provide for each other and as we're abundant, as we create abundance for each other, we're doing basically what God did for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He created the world and then he created the abundance that man could have. And when we create this abundance for each other, when things overflow from us, the original abundance comes from God, but when we allow our abundance to overflow to others, then what we've done is we've participated with God in creating that paradise, and we've brought them temporally back into Eden, which is, also has the effect of bringing both of us spiritually back into Eden. We're actually doing the same thing that Christ did for us. And this is why the blessings are so great that he describes in chapters 8 and 9. He talks about how in chapter 8, verse 12, how if there first be a willing mind, then it doesn't actually matter what the magnitude of the gift is. Uh, you remember the story of the widow's might, where Christ sees a woman casting two mites into the temple treasury. And he says she's given a greater gift than anyone, that all the rich people that are casting in from their abundance because she's given everything. So uh, that, that is echoed by Paul here, that concept, that if there first be a willing mind, I'll read that verse for you. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. If there first be a willing mind, is it is accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he hath not. 
So a willing mind and not a large wallet is actually the criteria for God to gauge our generosity. This is what creates abundance, is not how much we have, but how willing we are. King Benjamin said something similar when he said, if you see someone, it turns out that you're poor, but you see someone in need, you could say to them, I don't ha- I give not because I have not, but if I did, I, if I had, I would give. And if you do that, then you've, what you've done is you've maintained your integrity before God. You've shown that you have a willing mind. And God will know if you're lying, right? You can't just say that, but you have to mean it. Uh, you ha- it has to be true that if you had, you would give. Another scripture I want to read is, and this is where we get the title of our lesson, God loveth a cheerful giver. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. Every man according, he talks about how we should give. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So if this Holy Ghost has spoken to you and let you know that there's something that you think you should give, then that's probably what you should give, right? Your heart has told you that there's a purpose that you have decided to give something. So go ahead and do that. Follow that prompting. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So notice the word abound and grace. Those are two things that happen in an overflowing way. Grace is something that comes, as we've said a few times in the last few weeks, disproportionately. So, so remember that the Hebrews were familiar, the Jews and Uh, Those worshiping Christ, they were all familiar with the idea of grace. They just saw it a little differently than they did after Christ had taught what grace truly meant. But they understood that God was blessing us out out of the proportion of what we do for him, that we were unprofitable servants. And it turns out, as we read in these two verses, that what unlocks that grace, that willingness from God for him to act towards us, as not as an investor who wants a return on his investment, but as somebody who's willing to just pour resources into those that he loves, into a purpose that he loves, and to let things overflow. That's what grace is. Grace and abundance are exactly the same thing. And what unlocks the grace of God is the willingness of mind, as it's expressed in chapter 8, or being a cheerful giver, as it's expressed in chapter 9. So our attitude 100% determines how much grace we're able to get from God and how much he's able to bless us. And we truly do create a paradise on earth for each other and allow God to create a paradise for us. At least that's the implication. It's a very, very strong implication, if not the outright promise of these scriptures, is that we create paradise for each other. We're co-creators with God, recreating the original Garden of Eden where he set man to have everything and all of his needs met. But we have to do it for each other rather than having God to do it for all of us. It's so that we can, it's it's not just so that we can have everything, but it's so that we can understand what it feels like for God to give everything. And so part of the lesson of these ver- of these chapters is not that God will give everything unto you and provide the, the blessings of life unto you, but that you can understand what it feels like to be God when he gives the best gifts. What a, the, Part of the blessing is the opportunity to give. Okay, just a couple of more main concepts that I find in these chapters. One I find in chapters, in, the, in all of the remaining chapters, and uh, it's spread throughout them, and it's the 
contrast between Paul and the other teachers of the Corinthians, or some of the other teachers of the Corinthians. Paul has contrasted the true apostles of Christ, which what what seem to be false apostles of Christ, or at least some people who have lost their way. They may be teaching a true gospel, but too pridefully, or they may be outright false teachers. Uh, we, We don't have too many other sources to know what exactly was going on, but Paul calls them false teachers, or he refers to them also as the chiefest apostles. And this is sort of an ironic term. A lot of people who read this think that he's talking about Peter and James and John and those who knew Christ. Right? He's not talking about them. What he's, when he says the chiefest apostles, what he means is those whom you, the Corinthians, have esteemed the, the most greatly. Those are the chiefest apostles. And I want to draw a contrast between those who are truly called of God and those who are most respected of men. So that's, that's one idea that we find in chapters 10 through 13. And then at the beginning, what we'll hit at the end is that, that wonderful passage at the beginning of chapter 12 that kind of stands out. So the first thing is, Paul introduced these ideas that are found in 10 through 13. Earlier on, we studied it a little bit last time, when he talked about the treasure in the clay pots or the earthen vessels in chapter 4, verse 7. And that was the testimony of Christ or the, the Holy Spirit that we have, each of us carries within us. And an earthen vessel is a humble way to store a treasure of gold right? Gold treasure inside an earthen vessel. And so an apostle carries the word of God and carries the spirit of God. This has a double interpretation, this metaphor does, because the earthen vessel is both a humble thing to look at, a humble container to look at, and it's also uh, a parallel to an earthen body that is created by the master potter, as God is called in a few books in the Old Testament. And so this body, the fact that, that our uh, bodies that are made of dust could contain an internal spirit and something as powerful as the tra- uh, the means to transmit the Holy Ghost is truly miraculous, but also conveys the idea that someone as humble as Paul, and it seems clear now, this is that earlier passage now ha- is being clarified, and that's why I'm bringing it up again. What Paul is saying is, Um, we get a little more context and we realize that Paul actually didn't see himself as that powerful of a public speaker. So that's an idea that is expressed in a couple of different places. First, in chapter 10, verse 10. Now this is Paul uh, sort of characterizing what the Corinthians are saying about him. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So in other words, Paul doesn't look like much and he's not that powerful of a speaker. But when he writes, uh, then we know that it's from God. Now, obviously, Paul was doing something right in person because there was no one to write to before he went to Corinthians the first time, and he was able to convert them. So obviously, he carried something. It was this very treasure that we talked about, the treasure of the Holy Ghost, the converting power of the Holy Ghost that he could bring through his teaching. Now, how somebody could hear that and not think he was a powerful speaker is beyond me. But Uh, You remember that this idea is expressed by several prophets, most notably Moses, who needed a spokesman, and also Enoch in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. Enoch expressed something similar, and God gave him a similar bit of comfort, which was, I'm the one, you, you have to open your mouth. You feel uncomfortable with your power of speech, but you have to open your mouth. I'm going to be the one who puts the words in. And there's a strong reason behind this theme showing up again and again in the scriptures that 
those who are called of God feel too weak to fulfill that, power, that awesome responsibility. And it's because God needs us to know where, where the source of our power is coming from. And this is what Paul is expressing. When he talks about the apparent weakness of himself and some of those others that he knows as mission companions who are the true teachers of God, the, the, their humble appearance and the way that they're unassuming, they, that they would never dream of boasting of their own power. And when he contrasts that with, which, with those who have set up their own standards for success and who are then able to easily meet those standards, then that contrast is very clear, and you can see that humility is the real key. So in, the, in chapter 10, one word that shows up a lot is measure. And so it's important to, to understand what this means. It, it's actually repeated so much that it almost gets meaningless. So I'll, I'll start in verse 12. Start from 12 to the end. You see the word measure many times. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with, with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Now the point of this verse is to say, when he says measure, what he means is a standard. When you set the goalpost for your own success, for what it means to be a great teacher, and you can change it at will, then it's not that hard to be, this is what, what it means to have a worldly standard. It's not that hard to be successful. It's not that hard to be admirable. It's not that hard to have something to boast about because you've set up your own standard. But then in verse 13, Paul says, but we will not boast of the things without, without our measure. Not meaning they don't have our measure, but meaning it's outside of our own standards. It's, it's without rather than within. And what, what Paul is saying is the true disciple, a true disciple of Christ is not going to boast of the things of meeting the standard of God because he knows that he didn't do it by his own power. So he says we, they would boast according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. So the point is God is judging me, Paul, and that is the judgment that I care about. I don't need to meet up my own standards so that I can share with other people how powerful I am. And that's what the chiefest apostles, these super apostles in some translations, that's what they're doing. They're telling you how great they are, and they look more successful. I've never been a burden to you. Paul, rep- Paul repeats this from, through chap- from chapters 10 through 13. I've never been a burden economically to you. I've come unto you, and sometimes I've accepted some support from other churches that I left and carried their gifts with me to come to you, and I used that for my support. Sometimes I've worked among you, as we read in the book of Acts, as a tent maker, but never have I relied on you to give me anything. I have been coming to give things to you just as Christ has given to me, and therefore I don't appear to be wealthy. I have... Uh, as I as I expressed last week, uh, this is right out of Isaiah chapter fifty three. I don't have any form or comeliness that that man would desire me. This is the way Christ was described. He didn't. He was born in a manger, and he didn't have a wealthy position, a wealthy family, or a position of prestige. And there was no reason why people would think this is our Messiah. This is our King. And Paul is saying. You should understand this about Christ and know that it actually marks me as a true follower of follower of Christ when I match him in the humble the humility of my presentation. 
I, I don't look like much. I don't wear the most expensive clothes, and I perhaps am not as polished in my speech, although my knowledge is not behind anyone. My knowledge has always been right on the money with how I, well I know the scriptures and how well I know the Lord. And so I would never have you think that I, that I don't have a good opinion of my own knowledge, but I don't boast of my gifts in these areas. And you have people that you admire because they have fit this standard that you've set up and that you've decided is important. And so there's a, num- there's a number of verses in these chapters that are actually ironic. When Paul calls himself a fool, what he's saying is, and this is in chapter 12, verse 11, I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Now, that is actually sort of a strange verse to read. You kind of wonder, what does all that mean? What he's saying is, I'm acting like a fool, but you've made me do it. You're the ones who ought to show that you approve me. Even if I'm nothing of myself, the truth is I'm not inferior to any of the men that you esteem so greatly. So this is when, when Paul says, I'm acting like a fool, um, he's being ironic, right? There, and there are a number of things where Paul says, I'm less than. He's actually using irony to point out to them how nonsensical their viewpoint is. And this is what their viewpoint is that the, the measuring stick of man is more important than the measuring stick of God. So, so Paul has very powerfully and very consistently and very repeatedly taught throughout these, these chapters this idea that the followers of Christ appear like the one that they serve. They appear like Christ himself, which was in humility and not necessarily offering the glory of the world, but offering truth and being accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit as he taught. And that's really one of the central attributes of Christianity, right? Is that we're willing to worship a God who showed up in humility among us. He is glorious, yes, and he's also, the, the his condescension was not just to our level, but below all of us. He made himself beneath everyone so that he could know how to succor everyone. And that's sort of the unique thing about Christianity is that Christ was so humble. And this is a powerful testimony from Paul reminding us that those who follow him will appear in the same way. Now I want to talk about uh, this amazing passage in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, where Paul describes, among other things, his thorn in the flesh. I've been really looking forward to talking about this and exploring what this idea means. And uh, it's one of those things where we don't know for sure. So it's, it's another example of a time when in the scriptures the question is more important than the answer. And the question I'm going to give you, and you can think about it and take it with you, is what does it mean to have a thorn in the flesh? Before we get to that, we're going to talk about these first few verses. Uh, Paul, so this, this does fit in with the rest of these chapters that we're studying, but it also goes a little bit beyond them. So... The, the first verse fits in as he says, I, I do have cause to boast, but not about myself. The boastings that I could do are all about the glory that I've witnessed and have received from God, but not things that I created. Now, an interesting question comes up right here. In verse 2 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Heaven, And then in parentheses it says, whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. 
He repeats this idea. I knew such a man, how that he was caught up into paradise. And then in parentheses again in between there, it says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. So the interesting question here is, what does it actually feel like to be a prophet to receive a revelation from God? Now, I'll remind you that there was an early version of the Book of Mormon and some of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants where there were some punctuation, spelling errors, that actually caused people to fall away from the church because they felt like if Joseph Smith is a prophet, then how could he possibly make a mistake in a revelation from God? To me, uh, this is an interesting couple of verses that sort of illuminate this question. And I think it's an important concept for us to think about as Latter-day Saints, which is, what does it feel like when a prophet receives a revelation? It's so hard for us to know. This is one of those rare times in the scriptures when it's actually described. Paul is saying that it was such a direct spirit-to-spirit. I mean, this is my interpretation, obviously. It was such a direct spirit-to-spirit communication. I don't even know whether I went there physically or not. All I know is God gave me this awareness, and I beheld something, and I I couldn't tell. If I went there physically, it sure felt like I did. And we have a lot of notes and scholarship that has been done about the revelations of Joseph Smith. And and I'll just take one section, the Doctrine and Covenants section 76, for an example. There has been research done on how exactly did he record the words of these visions. And there... uh, there's some evidence that he used scribes and he used editors that weren't himself to make sure that it was expressed in the best possible way. The point I'm trying to make with that is, I don't believe, this is my personal belief, I don't believe that God came to Joseph Smith and said, uh, Joseph, here is exactly how I want section 76 to look, or section 88 to look. So I'm going to give you first one word and then the next word, and I'm going to spell them out for you. Now, there has been a description by Joseph Smith that this is exactly what it looked like for him to receive the Book of Mormon. And that's because they weren't his revelations. They were the revelations of other prophets. And so as he was reading and translating the Book of Mormon, he would, as we've, as we've learned, peer into this hat and bury his face in the hat, and then he could know whether his scribe had accurately transcribed the words that he was reading. And some words he would stop and spell, and some words he would just continue reading. And if he would take a break from translating and come back to it, he would begin uh, the process again and start with exactly the word he left off on. So that's one example where the words were given to Joseph Smith. But when they were direct revelations from God to Joseph Smith for him to give to the saints rather than for him to translate, then it seems clear that what's happening is Joseph is receiving an experience from God, not just uh, a revelation that can be expressed in words, but it's something for which words would never be adequate. Um, Another way in which this is described in the scriptures is when Jesus prays for the multitude in the book of 3 Nephi, and tongue could not express, no one could ever know the words which Jesus prayed at that time because they weren't words. At that point, they were all having personal revelation with, from Jesus about what he was praying. And it was all individual. Every person was feeling this feeling of the love of Christ, the, his hopes for their future, 
how much he cared about them, and perhaps what their purpose in life was. I mean, all of these things, all of this wisdom can be communicated through the Spirit instantly. And I imagine that was the experience that they were having. And none of them could ever adequately record it. That's, I've, I've always wondered, well, I shouldn't say I've always, for a long time I wondered, what exactly did Christ say? If it, if it couldn't be recorded, how could it possibly, how could he have given a prayer if nobody could write it down? What if there was a recorder there and, you know, maybe they were too caught up in the experience? But no, the truth is what they were experiencing was not done through language. Christ was communicating beyond language. And it's sort of like, for those of you who have been around long enough to remember the days of dial-up modem, where you had to get on AOL and you waited for the little uh, connection process and it would dial into a, a computer that was actually sitting on a phone line somewhere, and then it would go through this little uh, sound interchange where it would log in, and then it sounded like static after that and your speaker would cut out and you were on the internet. But it was really, really slow. And that's sort of what physical language has to feel like to God in comparison with the highest internet backbones of today where God can just give you a lifetime of experience and wisdom in one instant. And that is that is how he communicates. And that is how Joseph Smith received his revelations. And that is how Paul received his revelations. That's what I read in these verses. And I bring all that up so that we'll know when a prophet doesn't communicate something perfectly, it's not, it does not mean that he hasn't received that from God. It means that he has imperfectly taken something that was not communicated through language and then expressed it into whatever language he did. It be it Greek or Hebrew or Reformed Egyptian or English, some things cannot be perfectly translated. They can only be represented. So that is what Paul is trying to get across here when he says, when I, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. We find that again in the first few chapters of the Book of Mormon where Levi, Lehi has his throne theophany of God, and then he tries to express, you know, God is trying to, God is telling us we have to leave Jerusalem. God is telling us that we have this, um, this destiny to receive his love. All of these things that he transmits through his dream and through his requests of his children, they're all an imperfect representation of this amazing, marvelous experience that he had as a prophet when he was caught up into heaven. So all of this is brought home in verse 4. We're still in 2 Corinthians 12. In verse 4, Paul says, He was caught up, I know such a man, he was caught up into paradise, and he heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And what that really means is it's, it's impossible for me to tell you what I experienced there. Now, Paul is describing another person, and this would be in line with Hebrew philosophy at the time, which was far different from the early scriptures where they felt comfortable uttering the name Jehovah or Yahweh around the time of Christ and after, and a, and a couple of centuries before, they drew away from that, and they actually avoided at all costs uttering the name of God because they felt like uh, an over-familiar, uh, too much familiarity with that name had been why, one of the reasons why God was displeased with them and carried them away captive. And another, uh, another reluctance along those same lines is describing yourself as having been the recipient of a, of a marvelous vision. So Paul is putting this in the third person as a means of humility. And a lot of scholars think this is what is going on. 
this idea is supported because in verse 7, Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So he's describing revelations, and then he says, because I needed to stay humble, God gave me this experience. God gave me a negative experience so that I would remain humble because I'd had so many revelations. Now, uh, that's that would seem to connect these first few verses, these experiences being caught up into heaven and and into paradise with Paul himself rather than in someone, a man that he knows. But before we move on, I just wanted to reiterate that this is an important concept, that that when a prophet doesn't teach something perfectly, it doesn't mean that they haven't received it from God. Moroni expressed this best when he was worried about the, those people who would receive his words, the Gentiles receiving his words, and they're going to mock me. And God, the word of God came unto him and it said, Fools mock, for they shall mourn. My grace is sufficient for your weaknesses to cover up any weaknesses you have in transmitting my word. And so the point that I take is, rather than expect a prophet to be perfect, I expect a prophet to be faithful. And then I hope and I pray and I attempt to have God confirm that experience to my own heart. So Paul, because of the many wonderful things he'd experienced, he is testifying in verse 7 that if he had not been given a reason to be humble, he would have exalted himself above measure. And remember, measure is some standard. He would have, he would have been willing to boast of himself. He would have been willing both in his own thoughts and in the words and viewpoints of others, he would have been willing to put himself on a higher level because of all these things he'd experienced. And so if it had it not been for the fact that God humbled him, and how did God do that? Now, this is such an interesting phrase. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. This has been interpreted in a lot of different ways. One way is that God gave me a spiritual weakness that, my, that I would, for a thorn in the flesh could be interpreted, for example, as an inclination to lust, and that, like, the flesh very very often refers to uh, the pleasures of the flesh, right? I'm not saying that's how Paul intended this phrase, but that's how in English it does appear in one interpretation. So God gave me a thorn in the flesh. It could be a temptation like a physical addiction. So something like uh, alcoholism or a drug addiction. It could also be an ailment. So Paul might have had some sort of handicap. It seems likely that he could walk just fine, but maybe he had a physical disability, maybe he had bad vision, maybe he had constant headaches, uh, but he may have had an infirmity, right? Or he may have had some problem with his appearance. Uh, maybe he didn't look, maybe he had a deformity, so he didn't look as, as a perfect person would want to look. Maybe he had uh, one of his hands was misshapen. I mean, th- these are just ideas because there's so many possibilities here that this is one of those, as I mentioned, this is one of those instances where the question is more important than the answer. How many different things could a thorn in the flesh mean? It could mean that he is subject more than an average person to a particular spiritual temptation, uh, something that is flesh, fleshy, like, like lust, or like greed, or like desiring for the honors of men. Or it could mean that he has a physical problem, or it could mean that he has uh, an obvious physical imperfection. So all of these possible meanings of thorn in the flesh would have different reasons for causing what comes next, but they all have the same result, which is that Paul was unable because of it 
to glory in himself and to boast of himself. Now we're given a little bit more information. I was given a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now that would seem to support the idea that this was a temptation. But remember, a physical weakness or ailment or imperfection could also give rise to a temptation. So if I was handicapped, I could have the temptation to conclude that God doesn't love me. If I were not as physically attractive as someone that I wanted to be like, then that would give rise to the temptation that I was worth less than that person. So just because he says the messenger of Satan doesn't mean that it was necessarily an addiction. It could mean that Paul was subject to the temptations associated with an illness. You know, God has given me this because I'm better than other people and I'm more able to withstand it. All of those, all of those different ways of interpreting a thorn in the flesh, they all have their associated temptations. The reason why I love that Paul didn't get more specific is because now when we read this, a thorn in the flesh, we can apply it to our own situation and we can say, wow, if I have something that I've tried and tried to overcome and have been unable to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm on the wrong track in my life. Because as we read in verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. So Paul tried and tried again to to get the Lord to take this thing away, take this weakness, take this trial, whatever it was. Just remove it. And Paul was used to getting answers to his prayers. He knew exactly what it felt like to see the Lord, to be caught up into heaven, etc., Finally, and, and but this particular thing he had to pray about repeatedly, and obviously he wasn't praying in line with the Lord's will, because the answer he eventually got was, "My grace, no." The answer was, "No, I'm not going to take the thorn in the flesh away from you." Uh, and more specifically, God said, "My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness." Now this idea both goes beyond and ties in perfectly with everything that we've talked about in in these chapters. First of all, uh, because Paul has this thorn in the flesh, he's unable to boast. He He needs to remain humble. And the grace, the abundance of God is sufficient. If Paul will have the humility, right, the willing heart, then God can create the abundance, the rewards that come out of proportion with Paul's offering. But then Paul takes it beyond, and he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And the point here is, I think, expressed most beautifully in that, in that most wonderful of all scriptures, Ether 12, 27. And if you don't have this memorized, then I encourage everyone, I think everyone should have this scripture memorized. So Ether 12, 27 starts out, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Now this is interesting. I give unto men weakness. Right? Paul expressed a similar idea. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. In Ether 12, 27, uh, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. My grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me, have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. So that's interesting that we, this, this says explicitly the purpose of weakness is for humility. 
And that is absolutely true. Think about how your life would have gone. How humble could you possibly be if you'd never had a single weakness? It would have been impossible for you to ever humble yourself before God because you would have thought that I have all of these strengths within myself. So there's a very important purpose for weakness. But more than that, we should want to know it. So often we try to cover up our weaknesses, hide them from others and from ourselves. And what Ether 1227 teaches us is that we should be seeking out our weaknesses actively with God. If men come unto me, I will show them their weakness. So often we go to God and we want him to show us our strengths. God, tell me that you love me. Tell me that I'm doing something right. Tell me what to do next. And instead, what God is perhaps at times most willing to do or most eager to do is to show us our weaknesses, which is very painful for us to receive. But if we will do that, if we will humble ourselves before God and have faith, then his grace will be sufficient. Then this wonderful means of God creating abundance for us, of taking us back from the fallen world we live in to the world he originally created for us to live in, is unlocked for us, which is grace and abundance. It's, it's overflowed into us when we humble ourselves in two ways. First, by going to God in the first place to receive a revelation about our weaknesses. And second, then, to let those weaknesses humble us even more. Now, there are a couple of other scriptures I just want to mention as we close. If you go 10 verses farther along, Ether 12, 37, Because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my Father. So seeing our weaknesses is a way is to guarantee that God will make us strong. Now remember, Ether chapter 12 is also the chapter where we get verse 4, which is, and I'm going to read this to you, but basically it says that, Once we've accepted the idea, we've chosen to believe that there is a God in the world, then that belief is an anchor to our soul to the extent that even though we might recognize that we're weak, we're hoping for a better world. So I'm going to read this for you. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. So we'll have so many good works when we just choose to believe that God is going to reward us for our humility, that they will abound. These good works will overflow from us to others, and they will be the means of unlocking God's grace. One final chapter I want to mention is Second Nephi chapter 9. Now you remember, this is the chapter where Nephi says, how great the frailties of men. They're learned, and they think they're wise. Now, if you go a few verses farther on, this is 2 Nephi 9, 42. Uh, Nephi says, Whoso knocketh, to him will he open. And the wise and the learned and they that rich and who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. And save they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God, and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto him. So now, this, this verse is almost pure poetry. Recognize that it begins with knocking, and it ends with opening. And in the middle, it talks about how we can both disqualify ourselves and qualify ourselves. And it does it in threes, 
I mean, this, this verse is worth studying, 2 Nephi 9.42. But the important phrases I'm going to repeat for you. We have to consider ourselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility. Now, this is exactly what Paul has been describing that he has done. You can call me a fool if you want. I consider myself a fool before God. But I'm willing to be humble because God gave me this wonderful gift of a thorn in the flesh. So now as we're talking, now as we're finishing up our lesson, I want you to think for just a few more seconds, I want you to think about what your thorn in the flesh is, and you all know what it is. You maybe have two or three of them. It's that thing that you've been trying to get rid of your whole life, or it's been it's something that you're trying to overcome, and it could be, rather than something that anchors you, as a belief in God does, anchors you to uh, having hope in a better world, it could be something that anchors you to this world, a desire for honors of men, or a habit of gossiping, Or it could be something so much more sinister. It could be a terrible temper. It could be an addiction. It could be a persistent health problem that you've always prayed to have God remove, and he's never been, seems, he's never seemed willing to do it, to answer your prayers. So you all know what your thorn in the flesh is, I think. I mean, yes, you should. You should have some idea. And if you don't, then Ether 1227 gives you a formula as to how you can find out. But let's say that you have a pretty good idea of what it is then first of all, have com- God is calling you to have compassion on yourself. You don't have to judge yourself for this thorn in the flesh. God knows how much of it is a result of your choices, but some of it is certainly the messenger of Satan, and some of it has been given you from God. It is a weakness that God has given you so that you'll remain humble. And so there's a lot of grace there. There's a lot of mercy there that God will help you. And he's saying, have a willing heart. Be generous and be humble. And if you'll do that, then you, then you unlock this marvelous, disproportionate gift of God's grace that can carry you all the way from where you are to the world in which he originally created you to live in, which is a world we've heard described in various scriptures from today as being on the right hand of God or paradise or sit up in the highest heaven. This is a promise for everyone. This is a promise for you as you sit there in your imperfections and your weakness and your sins, and your questions, and your doubts. This is the most merciful lesson you will hear in any belief system anywhere, which is that God has extended his arm to you, and he has transcended every difficulty, every hurdle, every roadblock that would, that would keep you from coming back to him. And, and if we will reach up, take his hand by doing these couple of things, be, be generous, be humble, and have a willing heart then the lifeline, the Jacob's ladder of God's grace is lowered from heaven and raises us up to live with him forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.